welcome to episode 16 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Lenny Balsera, lead system designer on Evil Hat's Dresden Files RPG, and their lead fate system developer. Lenny is also a Leo, juggler, and gourmet ice cream connoisseur. You can find out more information about Lenny by visiting evilhat.com. So without further ado, hi there Lenny, how's it going? It's going well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure, I'm looking forward to getting a little bit of uh, inside dope on the, uh, on the game design front and uh, hearing some of your thoughts on these, uh, these questions. But uh, just for the benefit of anybody that's perhaps unfamiliar with you or your work, I've got a few questions to start with just to sort of set up your role-playing credentials and then we can uh, crack on with the inside the role-play studio proper. My cool. first question is, how long have you been a role-player? I have been a role-player for over 20 years. Um, I started when I was uh, eight, about eight, eight or nine, and I am certainly far from that. <laughs> I'm sure people could do some math on that one. Yeah, I was the last guest I was uh, speaking with, Satine uh, Phoenix, uh, was, I said, I've been a role player for 20 years, and I thought, no, hang on, I've been a role player for 30 years, I'm getting, <laughs> it's, it's scary, really, I've been a, and like Chris from episode five said, I've been a role player longer than I've been anything else, so... It's uh, certainly been a lifetime occupation. So how did you get started, and what did you play first? My first game ever was D&D Redbox. Uh, I played it first when I was about, uh, like I said, uh, nine, eight or nine years old. Uh, I got into it basically because my mother bought me the first book in Joe Deaver's Lone Wolf series, Flight from the Dark. I don't know if you're familiar with those or not, but I read that, and I loved it. And I then had a school buddy who was basically like, yeah, you know, you can do that exact same thing with other people. And I was like, you can? And he said, yeah. And then I got into my first Redbox D&D game, uh, and I was hooked, and that was pretty much it. Right. Do you have a, uh, a sorrowful first role-playing experience tale? Like, a, like see, most people on the show here that I've, that I've talked to uh, from this particular angle have had something terrible happen. Like Sean was a, was a gnome in a, in a bag, and, and David from episode 10 was also, strangely enough, a gnome in a bag stabbing a zombie. And my first role-playing experience was rolling up a traveler character and then dying during character generation and then giving up role-playing altogether for a couple of years. Is yours a, a sunny first introduction or...? Yeah, I mean, I I did die. I played an elven wizard, and uh, which wasn't even like I mean, this was back when elf was like a uh, when you were just elf, right? right? As a class rather than a class. Rough. So it wasn't even like it was a house ruled. Like the GM was already wanting to do like classes, and oh, I want whatever race to play whatever character they want. So I, I don't I don't really know how <laughs> accurate to red box. The game experience was, now that I think about it, but uh, in any, at any rate, I remember being an elven wizard and being very fragile and, and having that catch up with me. But it didn't really bother me at the time. I was like, woohoo, this is awesome. Let's, let's put another character through the grinder, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. What difference did you notice there was between the Joe Diva Lone Wolves and, say, the Fighting Fantasy books? You know, I read both. I, I, I think I was young enough at the time that, to me, it was just all, was all great. Like, I was kind of a sponge for that kind of content when I was younger. I liked fantasy, and I liked sci-fi a lot from a really, really young age, you know, and I, 
if it was exotic and not set on in a real place, I just I was a sponge. I just soaked it up. So, yeah, I was. I just loved all of it. And did did you have a favorite in the Fighting Fantasy series? Uh, no, I ended up mostly sticking um, to the Lone Wolf books, right. largely because my my mother had gotten it for me. And if I recall correctly, it was a birthday present or something, so it had had a uh, a sentimental value to me for that reason. Sure. And I, in fact, still have all of my Lone Wolf books wow. to, well to this day. Yeah, I last or two years ago, I went back to New Zealand and I spent a good portion of my holiday off and on trying to track down all of the fighting fantasy books that I'd had as a, as a child, um, which I guess is what a lot of people are, are doing right now. Like there's a big, big business and retro toys and all that type of stuff because us Generation X types or even Generation Y, uh, you know, trying to reclaim some of that, uh, some of that youth. And, and for us, that's, you know, not buying a 1957 Chevy Impala like my father used to have. It's like those, those sort of games and toys that, that, that we had as, as kids. And, um, yeah, that was a pretty, a pretty exciting enterprise, you know, one by one, tracking down these books on the New Zealand equivalent of, of eBay called, called Trade. Yeah. And, uh, and I, was, I went through them. My recollection was that City of Thieves, Zanbar Bone, and, um, was, was my favorite of the – that's number five was my favorite of the fighting fantasy. But, uh, but yeah, it sounds like you're a lone wolf, uh, a lone wolf guy, so – Right. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was uh, happy to um, uh, Mongoose Publishing, uh, I, I believe. Right? Did did a, a Lone Wolf RPG, a D twenty Lone Wolf RPG. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yes, and I think you're right, yeah. and they started reprinting the books. So I was I was happy to see that. I'm happy to see them back in circulation. Yeah. Do you think that that's a good gateway for kids to uh, role playing, or do you think that it's just to because kids? It strikes me that kids now are actually reading more than perhaps kids were 10 years ago. And then right. before that, kids were reading more. And there's sort of like a, a gap of about 10 years maybe or maybe even 15 years where kids weren't reading a whole heck of a lot. And as a consequence, role-playing really came into decline. But now kids are more into reading and Harry Potter and so on and so forth. Do you think that the numbers of role-plays are going up as a, as a consequence of, of that? Uh, I can tell you that it in when I talk to people about it about the hobby, and when I talk to younger people about the hobby, it seems less foreign. It seems less strange, and it may be an indicator of that. I only really can talk about it anecdotally, but yeah, I um, have definitely at conventions and things like that when I've been demoing and and this that and the other. I, I have noticed that there's a that a lot of younger people are interested you know and you you might you might say that's a warm market because i mean they're already at the at the convention you know whatever but like but still yeah it seems it seems not as strange i think you know the video games are partially to blame for that too i mean they have you know mmos and 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 things like that it's 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 just not as strange anymore to say yeah you pretend to be this guy and you traipse around in an imaginary world and do things and Oh, awesome. no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think that just being accepting of things in general, you know, quite apart from role-playing, I think that society is becoming more accepting as time goes by. And, and I know that when I first started out, and even, even today I've still got some of that role-player's shame, you know, like where, where it's always a bit uncomfortable when people ask you what, uh, what role-playing is. And, 
And so I'm wondering if that's sort of like going away for kids, like you're allowed to be into anything you want to. I mean, even being into anything itself maybe is a little bit, <laughs> is a little bit uncool for teenagers at one point. But, but I think that, you know, the Harry Potter and, like you say, the online role-playing games, just the general acceptance of people into different stuff is perhaps uh, certainly helping us along. And, and, and one other question I had for you with regards to, you know, starting out uh, with, with role-playing is, did, did you let girls play? Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, there were girls that played. Um, I mean, it, it took a while because I was, you know, the, the GMs in my first groups were much older. Right. Well, not maybe, maybe not much older. They, it seems like that at the time because, I mean, sure. you talk about a two- or three-year gap when you're that young is, yes. is, is significant, you know. But, yeah, there were girls around in the early groups that I played in. It, it, didn't, it didn't seem to me... It took a while for me to realize that that was uh, uh, not normal for some people. Right. So, Satine in episode uh, 14 was saying that because she runs a, a group called DD Melt on Sunset Boulevard in California. And oh, cool. uh, she uh, says that there are a lot of women showing up now um, 26, 27, 28, you know, that had experiences with role playing as as children or certainly young adults, you know, teenagers, pre-teens maybe. Um, right. And it was something that boys did, and they were often told they weren't allowed to play or they let them play um, under sufferance and then killed them off directly. And so there were all these sort of scarred girls that were originally interested in, in gaming but got turned off because they weren't allowed to, to play. And I'm just actually trying to find anybody, that, that, uh, find anybody that's guilty of that so that I can uh, flagellate them for their, uh, for their short-sightedness. Because yeah, you know, I've... Uh, yeah, I've heard a lot of similar stories too. I mean, obviously that's sad. I wish I had something more profound to say about it other than <laughs> that it is sad. Where I encountered that phenomenon more was actually when I got older. Like when I was in my teenage years, like going into high school, you know, uh, what, would you, what we would call junior high or high school, getting into that, I noticed that there was more segregation you know, when I moved, whenever I would move to another town or whatever, you know, it'd be sure. a different kind of a thing. So, yeah, I mean, I have seen that phenomena take place, but I have never. No first in experience. Uh, I've never. Well, no, yeah. I mean, in some groups that I were in, was in, I've, I've had that experience, but I've never. Um, it's always bothered me right. a lot. Right. Uh, so, so hug a girl gamer. Just, just find a girl gamer and give her a hug and just you know, say sorry for, <laughs> for all of the terrible things. You know, like give them some, it, give, it, give if, them some positive reinforcement. If she wants the hug, then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe, maybe don't. Maybe don't. Maybe make her shake her hand. Smile. Right. Just, just yeah. smile. Say something pleasant. It's nice to see you. How about that? Right. Uh, so, so you started with Joe Diva and Fighting Fantasy. Then you had the Red Box. And then what did you play after that? Well, gosh, I mean, everything, Champions and Hero, and uh, I've played uh, uh, some Rifts and and uh, some of the, the other Palladium stuff and uh, Fasa's Star Trek role-playing game. I mean, I basically tried to play everything I could get my hands on, Shadowrun. Um, I, when I was a teenager, I played a lot of Star Wars D6. Right. That's, prob- that's probably the game that, that I played the most. Um, of course, Call of Cthulhu. Um, over the edge, yes. Uh, feng Shui. I mean, basically, if it was a role-playing game, 
I was a, bit, a little fanatical about it when I was younger. Sure. Th- that oh. was one thing that Zach from uh, episode 13 was saying, is that there's almost two sort of styles of role-playing. There are, there are people that find a game that they like and, then, and they play it, and that's all that they do. And then there are people who, for whom the hobby, at least at some part during their time during their role-playing careers, or they just want to play everything. And, and playing new games is actually more interesting to them than, than sort of playing any one game for, for a long period of time. Is that Which would those types would you characterize yourself as? Oh, I'm, I'm definitely all over the place. Yeah, I never, I never really got hooked onto like a single game, but I think that was largely because I was a sponge for so many different... Like, I liked sci-fi, and I liked, you know, cyberpunk, and I liked the Musketeers, and I, I, I you know, I mean, if it was a, a subgenre of action-adventure fiction, I, I was into it. So, it was, I think it was just the, the side effect of seeing it on the shelves and uh, going, wow, that's, a, that's an awesome game that has a, a premise that D&D doesn't have, so I want to see what that's about. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, any, anything that I was a fan of in other media, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. I wanted to consume sure. as a role-playing game. I liked James Bond movies, so Victor Games' James Bond RPG was awesome. That's yeah, what we're I mean, talking about. it. How did you find those, those James Bond games? Because I remember one time playing, a, uh, playing a, a, a James Bond game, and I think it was... It's the one where he runs across the crocodiles. Is it? Uh, oh, I, I can't remember what it, what that one's called. In any case, um, and I was playing through that that module, and, right? And it was very. The module was the movie. Like we got to the crocodiles, I knew right. what it was that I that I had to do. And at that point, it kind of broke the fourth wall for me because I didn't really remember the film all that well. But then when we got up to that point where you know we had to run across these crocodiles i'm like this i'm just i'm just playing the, the movie this I'm, I'm kind of and it made me feel a little bit like i was on rails which is not necessarily a bad thing and and as a necessity certainly for games like say for example something you might run at a convention but when i was right. playing that i felt you know like oh hang on i'm this is this is not my game anymore i'm just following in somebody else's footsteps did you ever get that feeling um there yeah with a couple of the the modules when um when we would play the modules, yeah, I've uh, I felt that way. We didn't always play the modules. No, sure. But sometimes, you know, I mean, I was such a I'm such a fan of a lot of the films too that a lot of sometimes it didn't matter. Like sometimes that was the point, right? Like yeah. you're you're celebrating, right, the fact that you can participate in this thing sure. that that uh, you know, in in that sense, uh, the having the set expectation can almost be a good thing, right? Right. Uh, Sure. Just depending depending on how you're coming to the table, like yes. what what you're coming to the table to do, right? But no, I definitely remember like feeling that a little bit um, with some of the the modules. Yeah, yeah. That, as I say, I only had really the module experience. I didn't have the you know the free form. Literally use these rules and have our own type James Bond story. So in a lot of in a lot of respects, I guess that's uh, somewhat artificial. But one of the ideas that I uh, that I've sort of floated over the last few episodes is this idea of having a role playing game soulmate, and it doesn't it doesn't sound like you have have one. It, yeah, I've always tried to to take on as many different designs and ideas as i can like in the hobby because there's a i mean there's a tremendous amount of diversity in the hobby oh oh, absolutely for sure you know i guess it's just i don't know it's never occurred to me like the idea of like finding one one type of game to stick with i mean i think my preferences now are a lot more set and a lot stronger 
than they are than they were then. Like I, I definitely. Uh, there's certain subset types of games that I like to play now that I prefer to stick with, but it took a long time for me to really settle into the stuff that I, that now like fires me up. And for all I know, that could change in another. Oh, ab- another absolutely. Episode. And you may have yeah. more than one, may, may end up with more than one in your lifetime. But the, uh, I guess what I'm saying is if uh, there was a role-playing equivalent of your, your final supper before execution, uh, right. what, what role-playing game would you play? Man, that's such a that is such a uh, a hard question. Aside um, from anything that you've written yourself, that I'll put in the leaf. No, that definitely none of that would be on the list. That's all work, man. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> you're I'm very, just, you're a very lucky man to be doing that. Like I've, I've seen no, a number I, of times here, the uh, you know the the ability to write even on a even on a part time basis is a, is a dream that I've had since you know since I was 10 or, or 11 and and putting Victoria together was sort of a realization of a lot of years of false starts and, and, and investigation and and just having the book there is great but my dream always was back in those days when Dungeons and Dragons was red hot to to you know write a letter to TSR it was the included module that I'd written as a, an 11 year old and and be immediately put on the payroll and and uh, <laughs> and, do, and do that do that as a job maybe a little unrealistic but you know that was something that I uh, that I latched onto and, and I was talking with Satine in uh, episode 14 and uh, she had put a link on her blog to a uh, a TED speech that uh, David Mack had given a comic oh yeah, uh, yeah. Had, and and one of the ideas that he floated I don't know if it was original to to him but but nonetheless he said that. Uh, Think back to when you were you know, 10, 11, 12, and think about what it was that you loved doing at that point. Because at that point, you're old enough to, or mature enough, I should say, to, to see some practicality in terms of what could actually be a job or something you might enjoy doing, but still have enough wonder with the world to think that anything is possible. So whatever it was you were thinking about doing at that age is something that you probably would find very fulfilling as, uh, as a job um, when, when you're older. Does that resonate at all with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I consider myself to be very blessed. Um, I, I, I am uh, extraordinarily grateful for the fact that I get to do this. You know, it was funny because I, I yeah, I had that dream, absolutely, when I was younger. And I had, had kind of already given it up right. when... I ended up like it's a, it's it's a strange phenomenon to me because it, it, there's a degree to which it feels like it happened to me by accident, right? In that you know, and I I got my first my first opportunities were writing with Evil Hat, you know, and at that time at the time that I started talking to Fred and Rob, I was a very uh, loud and obnoxious fan on right. uh, the, the mailing list for what was then the free version of Fate that um, that they had and. I uh, read it, and I was I was in a lull in my gaming at that point. And when I read that that Fate book, I mean, it was a little like little sixty seventy page document, a lot of white space. Right. But it but the ideas in it uh, fired my brain up, right. and and kind of got me back into it. And then I started talking to them, and and one thing kind of led to another, and it was a little you know it was little bits at a time. It was like. Uh, you know, Fred was like, well, you know, if you're interested and we see you're doing a lot of stuff with the game, why don't you write this? We're thinking about 
doing X or, you know, I'd submit them something and they'd put it up on the website and this, that, and the other. And and so that just kind of piled those instances piled on themselves and became bigger over time until suddenly I was getting paid for this stuff. Right. But I look back on it and I'm like, wow, I'm a lucky, lucky bastard. It's something that's hard to appreciate once you're sort of in the midst of it, right? It's a, it's, people always talk about overnight success, but most people's success is very incremental. And it's often hard to, to, to see that you're on this, on this path, right? And until right. you actually get to the top and have a moment to take a breath and go, wow, you know what? I just went from there to, to there and look at, what I've, uh, look at what I've achieved or you know, look at what I've, what I've done. And while you're in it, though, you don't really notice that it's happening. Right, and and um, and often I I still don't. Uh, it's a strange thing. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, I think Seneca Seneca's quote is uh, "Luck is when preparation meets meets opportunity." Uh, opportunity yeah, or, or Oprah yeah. Winfrey if you if you're an Oprah Winfrey <laughs> fan. A lot of people think that, that was her quote, but uh, uh, as, as magnificent as I'm sure Oprah is, I don't think she can uh, actually claim that. But but yeah, so I think that you know that goes for everybody, right? And like don't. Yeah. Don't don't give up on anything. You just never know when something's going to uh, something's going to come in handy. And don't right. That's that's the uh, that's the J. Michael Straczynski quote, right? Never surrender dreams. Right. Is uh, is is what he always says. Yeah. So, uh, so and that's yeah. obviously paid off for you. You know, like just being in the right place at the right time, having the the right preparation, and and not losing sight of the fact that it's something that you that you love doing and giving it. You're all. I presume that you're working a, a job as well as doing all of this stuff. As yes, as well. so I, yeah, I am. Um, I'm actually um, the assistant to the lead developer for the Munchkin card game for Steve Jackson Games. <laughs> I, I laugh because that assistant to the rather than assistant, you know, like the uh, the um, Dwight Schrute or. Um, uh, I've forgotten, totally forgotten his name, Ashley Crooks in the office, you know, the, the right. not, not assistant manager, assistant to. The, right. Uh, the no, that, that is apt. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they very deliberately call that position the Munchkin hireling. <laughs> uh, uh, is, that, is, that, um, is that something that uh, you, again, just found yourself doing, or is that something you actively sought out? Um, it was a... Uh, uh, it was a fortunate happenstance um, because I had just moved here, and uh, Phil Reed, uh, you know the the COO of um, of Steve Jackson Games, uh, had put on his Twitter feed that they had an opening. Right. And I had literally been in Austin a month and a half. Right. And I was like, well, I've worked some in games. So I sent them a resume, and one thing led to another, and and that was that. Yeah, it was that was just another. I mean, it was a, an opportunity was there, uh, and I was like, yeah, why not? Yeah, for sure. Um, so that'd it, be interesting, just be in a different environment. I mean, uh, the uh, the Munchkin card game is. Uh, it's, I've only had very peripheral experience, but I think I might have played our game maybe as a in a demonstration a few years ago, but. Um, do you find that's a really different environment to the uh, putting together a role-playing game per se, or are a lot of those skills transferable? Um, the certainly, I think the the writing skills are transferable. The the I think there's a a certain if you study game design, I think there's a certain universality to some of the principles uh, of design 
regardless of whether you're making a board game or a card game or a role-playing game or video game or whatever. But, um, yeah, no, it is a, it is a, a, a vastly different environment. I, I have been learning a lot since I've been there. So, well, that's the other uh, thing too. If you can get, find yourself in a job where you're not learning anything anymore, it's maybe time to take a look at, you know, what, what, what are possibilities are for advancement or something else that you might be interested in, right? Like you, right. If, if you're not getting better or not getting anything out of it professionally, then, you know, that's a, that's, you know, maybe it's time to move on. Okay, so what do you actually play now, or do you find that doing this all day, every day, really makes you, you know, say, you know what, I don't want to see a dice or a card or anything <laughs> like that. I just want uh, to take up my lacrosse um, <laughs> basket and, you know. Well, um, no, the, the really nice thing about it is that it is not, it's not a writing job. It, you know, it's not a, a design job. Right. I, uh, I'm the assistant, so you know Steve. I mean Steve Jackson still writes a majority of the cards for Munchkin, and then right? uh, Andrew Hacker does all the developmental editing. And between the two of them, they pretty much knock all the stuff out of the park. So uh, oh. I don't do a lot of design work day to day. So I, I get to still do it freelance, which. Um, which is kind of nice because there was a year, there was a, a, a period of time um, where I was freelancing full time and I, I was putting out, you know, 30,000 words of content a month, right. you know, or, or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it is. And it, it, I, I actually did get to the point where it was burning me out. So I'm ex- extremely happy that that, that opportunity came along because I I still get to be in the industry, but in a different part of the industry, and I also get to breathe. So it's kind of like I get I get the best of, of all possible worlds. Yes. I, I have my creative energy to work on um, role-playing game projects that I'm passionate about, and I, I, I get to, to remain a freelancer and stay in that world. But um, as my day job, I also still get to be in that world uh, it's fantastic it sounds, sounds like an ideal situation you know you get to like you say get to have your cake and eat it too you're still around that sort of role-playing environment you're not having to churn out masses of content every day which lets your creative batteries recharge you've got space for doing freelance work still in uh, uh, as and when you you want but at the same time you've got a steady paycheck which for a lot of role-playing designers is is something outside gaming right yeah i'm like i said i i consider myself extremely blessed uh, I, I am extremely grateful. Okay, so I think most people should have a pretty good uh, handle on uh, where you're uh, coming from and, and where you're at now. So on with the uh, the real questions, I suppose. And the, fir- <laughs> <laughs> the first one, yeah, like all that other stuff. It's just, right, it's whatever. That's right. Yeah. You've, you've set up you've set up your credentials. Now people have got a yardstick by which to to measure you. Maybe they'll maybe they'll find you wanting. Maybe they'll be maybe they'll be inspired. No pressure though, Lenny. No pressure at all. So, Thanks. <laughs> what is your favourite book or or supplement other than anything that you've written? And of course, my game Victoria. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you play now. You might have picked it up maybe and read it once, and then you store it on your bookshelf, and you like to go back to it from time to time. Just something that is always a pleasure. Um, the Harvard Negotiation Project wrote a book called Getting to Yes. It's a book about negotiating with people, about structured negotiation with people. I consider it to be the finest book about GMing uh, that has uh, ever been written. Right. 
but it's not intended to be so. Is that nope from from the title? And, yeah? and I think uh, that very few of of the best books that I have read um, that have helped me in gaming have been gaming books. Uh, anything that you read about personnel management, about managing expectations, dealing with with um, uh, you know groups that are fo- like project teams and and stuff like that, uh, poker manuals, uh, just that and the other, I, I think are, are vastly, I, I find that I keep going back to them. Right. And do you think that that's because that type of book, because it's not explicitly role-playing related, creates a sort of synergy, um, between, you know, your own experience and the information that's in the book. So while you're reading the book, not only are you processing the words on the page, but you're processing it on a higher level where you're actually bringing your own experiences and your own, um, your own background and then sort of molding that information, fitting it into your role-playing sized hole in your brain. Well, yeah. I mean, well, uh, before it is anything else, role-playing is a social activity. And I think that, that – we are only now starting to – the conversations are happening you know, in, in certain places, and they've been going on now for a, a, a number of years, I guess. But I, I think that um, the fact that role-playing is primarily a social activity before it is anything else is something that has been n- not talked about enough, I, I guess. Uh, and um, th- I, I think figuring that realm out – Right before you start digging down into the minutia of, do I want contested or resisted roles in this design, or what you know, whatever the 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 minutia of a particular design are, I think is 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 paramount. Um, so that's I guess that's one of my biases. I guess is is perhaps the better way to put it is that what I tend to notice about role playing game play tends to be the social element of it, how, how a role-playing game system affects the conversation at the table, how it changes patterns of conversation, how our relationship to one another as players affects the content that we're willing to engage with and, 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 and things like that. That's my big, my big, uh, I live in that space a lot. Right. And so along those lines, how do you reconcile that against the stereotype that role players are socially inept individuals? Just as a you know, as a general blanket statement, it's obviously not true on an individual level, but but you know that's the perception of uh, us as a group. Yeah, I, yeah, I have always been puzzled by it. I guess I mean that's all I can really say. Uh, I have certainly never seen myself as socially inept, which you know, I mean, perhaps. I mean, I could be wrong. Of course, I have never. (laughs) (laughs) I have. I've never seen the people that I have role played with as being socially inept. For the most part, like I mean, it's not like that. I haven't met people in the hobby who are the basis for or who buy into that stereotype. But it's it's the same as it's the same as any stereotype, right? Like it, it it exists because. Uh, well, God, I mean, who knows? I mean, you'd have to talk to a, a sociologist uh, more than me to to figure that out. But, I, you know, um, I, I've always found an incredible and broad diversity of, of personality types in gaming. Um, 
hell, my the group that I played with in college, one of the guys on there was like the biggest jock you'd ever want to meet, right? Like softly played, you know, baseball and softball and, you know, uh, he's a tall, really athletic guy, very charismatic, very alpha male right. kind of a guy. I originally met him because um, he used to watch pro wrestling in the dorms very loud. Right. And, uh, you know, I uh, was new to the school in the town and I didn't really know too many people. So I stopped by. Their door was always open. So I stopped by and watched it with them and his conversation. So, I mean, yeah, that was like, uh, and he's still like to this day, he's one of my best friends, you know. I thought that story was going to go in a complete different direction. I thought you were going to say he had the wrestling on really loud. So he went along to his room and kicked his ass. No, no, I could, (laughs) I I probably could not have done so, A. But um, B would have had uh, no desire to. Yeah, and he he played Dungeons & Dragons with us. We played third edition in college, and, you know, he, I mean, uh, I just sent him a a copy of the Dresden Files, in fact. Um, And, uh, yeah, and, I mean, that guy games and... Oh, absolutely. I don't know. I don't think that that stereotype is, you know, I don't think it's valid uh, in a lot of respects, at least not as it is right now. But I wonder whether that the genesis of that stereotype was that originally people that were into role-playing were, you know, um, strategic, you know, like reenacting, like, um, tabletop war game type people. And that type of game appeals to a certain type of person. Now, the the role-playing experience has, has diverged widely over the years. Like, it began... You know, at that very you know, strictly delineated rules, and not much on the role playing, and plenty on the on the figuring out exactly what what happens with with rolling the dice. But then, as games have gone from being simulations to being sort of narrative, and I sort of view it as being a bit of a spectrum, it's sort of drawn more people in. But I wonder if that stereotype crystallised from those very early games. Um, you know, if that is the case, I'd have no idea. Um. Because, like I said, I mean, I can only speak to my own experience, you know, and I and I've I've never had that experience, right? Like the the kids that I used to hang out with and and play role playing games with. I mean, were they geeks? Sure, I guess, but were they also the cool kids? Were they also jocks? Were they also parts of all of these divergent groups? Yes. So, in the midst of that, like, how do you define a, the gamer type? Uh, right. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely, and. So, so I, it's, it's weird because like, you know, I mean, obviously this is one of the, this is one of the topics that always gets discussed in the hobby. And, you know, whenever I get involved in those conversations, it is, I feel a little, uh, sometimes I feel a little like the odd one out because, uh, that I have had such a contrasting experience yeah. to that. Now I've known people who have responded very poorly to having that stereotype placed on them. Yes. And, uh, you know, distance themselves from people because they did not want to be ridiculed or didn't want to be uh, shamed for liking something. But yes. but that's, like, more of the, the instances where I've run into the, quote, antisocial gamer, unquote, it's really been that situation where it's not the person that's antisocial, it's 
the people that are around them ridiculing them for enjoying something that has forced their hand or sure. or 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 um made them i guess taught them i guess this might be a bad word to expect that kind of hostility yes. and to respond to it appropriately sure. or inappropriately as we often do when we're young sure and the reason that i bring that up and why it continues to resonate with me is um, did you read the new york times article reviewing the second series of uh, game of thrones no i didn't um, there was a chapter, I forget exactly his name now, but, but basically um, he was having a dig at you know, role players. He called us Dungeons and, Dra- Dungeons and Dragons types. But as a journalist, as a, like, quite apart from whether you agree with his statements about the, the show, which I felt were erroneous in a lot of cases, but um, he, he's te- his, he described us as Dungeons and Dragons types. And so the reason I bring this up is because if somebody who writes for the New York Times uses Dungeons & Dragons types to characterize a group of people, then he must expect that his audience is able to grasp what a Dungeons & Dragons type is and, you know, what is that Dungeons & Dragons type. No, I I understand that there is a – that there is uh, something – that perception is out there, right? I mean you can't – I mean you can't deny the reality of – that perception being out there uh as to what it means yeah i i, I don't know no uh it's outdated there's no question in my mind that it's outdated but i think the genesis was probably in in the early days but there's such a broad um like there's such a broad appeal now that it just seems it's it's frustrating in a lot of respects that it still it gathers that you know still has that because Though the people that have that perception as well are probably the parents of some of these kids that are interested in, in getting into uh, into gaming as well. So that's uh, right. That's kind of the thing there. But anyway, I think that horse is well and truly dead. So if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way, and you just whenever you get anything to do with it, it just leaves you cold. See, I. Uh... I'm not sure that I can answer that question because even the – because you learn from negative experiences just as much as you learn from positive ones, right? So so for me, right, like I've I've always been grateful that there are, are bad products out there, products that have, have rubbed me wrong or that I, I found um, distasteful because they – either teach me what I don't want to do or they teach me what I don't like, which is an important thing to find out. Um, you know, so I, I consider all of those learning experiences. If they were gone, then I would not have had that learning experience. So that's hard for me to answer. Uh, sure. I'm not, everybody has an answer for that. My one, I'm on well on the record of this, but, but my one is traveler, uh, just because, you know, (laughs) I spent all that time putting together my character and then I died during character creation. So there's nothing Uh, against traveler itself, um, but it sort of scarred me for life. Uh, if I, if I have to be, uh, if I'm going to be petty, uh, no, uh, no, no, I don't want to be petty. Be petty. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I just, I don't. Uh, because you, because again, the it, it was, it was um, uh, my uh, the stuff that I bought into that I was ended up being disappointed by or ended up realizing that there there are a couple of you know supplement trains in. In games, you know, the 90s supplement train phenomena. 
or, or whatever that, you know, in retrospect, I was like, man, I really shouldn't have spent all that money because a lot of, uh, the time, a lot of that stuff ended up giving me diminishing returns over time, right? Yeah. Like, but like I said, I learned from that, right? Oh, sure. And, and uh, you know, getting to the point where I was able to confidently say, yeah, I really don't need to know all of this extra world lore or whatever it is information is in all of these things, Right, that like having the core book of a game and running with what's in there is perfectly sufficient for me in certain cases. Right, like that's that was a valuable thing to 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 learn. So I I am I am thankful to um, those supplement trains for teaching me that I did not in fact need to ride them as long as I did. Sure, and when you mentioned that you played rifts. Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's what you're talking about now, but I know sure. that, that, that Rifts book there, you know, there were so many Rifts books. And that reminded me of a question I was going to ask. Were you a, are you a completionist? Like, do you like to get every little thing from a game that you're into? It sounds like now the answer is an emphatic no, but at no. the time did you sort of collect and gather up vast quantities of those? Yeah, 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 I did. The guys with the strongest legs in my role-playing groups, the guys that played Shadowrun, because they had, they always, they all seemed to be, uh, carrying massive backpacks full of these, full of books, of rules and tables and, and, and stuff like that. And, right. and uh, that, uh, that's something that I actually never, I never got into myself. I never had that feeling about wanting to have all these books. Because much like yourself, um, I felt that um, I liked the core book, but I liked the fact that the core book left a lot of questions unanswered. And that right. sort of freedom allowed me to think about things in a certain way. And as soon as a game line started to crystallize aspects of the game and I found myself working outside, you know, the canon of that game, it right. created, you know, like time-wasting conversations about what this means and what that means and what this And you have to sort of be a little bit authoritarian as a GM and say, well, you know, that's not the way that it works for me. And, and right. people come to your game with a different set of expectations about the way that the world is because they've, you know, they've invested in all of these books and they've made their super awesome character based upon these splat books. And then you're saying, well, you know, that's kind of not what we're doing here. And then, you know, that's potentially going to reduce their enjoyment. Right, it creates friction. Well, yeah, and to me, that all that like falls a lot into into the social angle. And I guess it's one of the reasons, one of the several reasons why I noticed the social angle so much because I remember having those discussions. I remember having those arguments, you know, and and how how strange it was that um, what we were really wrestling over was this question of ownership. Mm. Who who is the owner? of this content, right? And like, you know, there are, uh, one of the things that I find, have always found fulfilling about role-playing games as opposed to non-interactive media, like novels and television shows and movies, is that you own the content. Yes. It is not, it is not given to you. It is, the prompts are given to you because you bind to the premise of a game or, or whatever. But from the point where your group starts creating the fiction and, and imagining stuff and, and, and creating material, it is yours in, in a real, very real, and I mean, capital O owns. You yes. own it. Yeah. Right? Yep. Aesthetically, you own its meaning. You own it. It's uh, all of it. And that was what the real, what I came to realize over time was is that that was really what a lot of the argument was about. Does 
a certain role-playing game company who writes this this line of games own that content right. or do you and your players own that content? And when somebody comes with the massive supplements and they're like, oh, you know, I have all this information, that individual GM who just wants to riff off the core book is like, well, you're, you're imposing an, an ownership on me. Yes. A sense, a sense of ownership that I'm not willing to to buy into, and I that was one of the that is one of the things that like has, has stuck out to me about that period of my my role playing life or whatever. Right. So, uh, so I guess probably uh, the next question: uh, Are there any games or supplements that you're looking forward to? Perhaps not so much supplements, but but games. And um, a number of my guests recently have sort of talked about this renaissance of uh, old school gaming. Um, I don't. Know the, know if that necessarily applies to anything that you're interested in but is there any anything in particular that you're looking forward to can i ask you a question sure what the hell is that because like i remember playing tunnels and trolls when i was younger right uh and i remember narrating all kinds of goofy goofy stuff into that game that wasn't necessarily structured like i remember that game having a a tremendous amount of support for somebody narrating an off-the-wall action that was not precisely like an attack or a, a block or whatever and, and sure. giving the GM a tool to say, well, whatever they say, here's, you know, how you can assign a value to it and then and then figure out how to give it give it significance in the fiction. I, I think that that it the the the, the compartmentalization, the, the attempt to classify games to, to give them uh, identities is really is really strange to me also because you could take that text out of Tunnels and Trolls and put it in any uh, small press, you know, whatever, the story game, whatever you want to call it now, right? And it's the same advice. Sure. It's, it's um, he, here are the, the tools for you to negotiate over uh, and how to give value to this move that your your character does. So it's it's kind of funny. Like it's called. The, I've heard that the term before. The old school renaissance, right? right? And there's something about the term itself that seems off to me. Yeah, to me, what it means is, and I'm not invested in it one way, one way or another. I've, I've, I'm on the record as never being and uh, playing much in the way of Dungeons and Dragons, at least since I was first uh, introduced to, to role playing. But mm-hmm. um, my understanding is that a lot of these retro clones and so forth—they're trying to recapture some of that, some of that magic for for people of when they first started role playing. Now, what that means from a design standpoint, I'm not exactly sure, but um, I know that. Uh, at least in some of those books, they're bringing back some of those, some of the artists that were associated with that, with that early work, and and, and they're doing drawings in those along those lines. Like James Milojevsky, for example, is right, uh, working right. on something, and, and just like yesterday, I think it was, he, he published a picture that he's going to be using in one of his new releases of a couple of um, ghasts, um, and drawn by one of the chaps that did the artwork from from Warlock of, of Firetop Mountain. And, and I don't oh, yeah. know exactly what you know how that ties into this whole idea, but my feeling is that it's a, that it's uh, trying to recapture some of that some of the sort of a simpler time, but um, of, of role playing. And like I say, it's a retro clone of the original uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So I don't know. If right? That's... Yeah, I've I've seen and I've seen a couple uh, you know a few of those games. But I, I guess for me, it, like I said, it's a strange thing because to me, none of those techniques ever went away. I guess that's what I what I'm getting at is, is I, I think. It's awesome that 
those designs are getting made because obviously I want as many people to make as many different kinds of designs as they can to grow the hobby in as many different directions as possible. Sure. But I, you know, I, I, I kind of look at them and don't see how they're old. Sure. Right. Uh, and that's, I guess, I guess that's my primary reaction. I'm like, this game seems awesome. What's old about it? Right. Yeah. It's just, it's, uh, strange um i what am i excited about right now let me actually answer your question now um <laughs> i uh i'm excited with what margaret weiss productions is continuing to do with cortex plus i'm uh i i liked smallville and i like leverage and um i liked marvel heroic and so i'm the next event book that's coming out is civil war and i'm excited to see that uh, I'm interested. Um, Thirteen Age, Thirteenth Age has been in getting a lot of buzz. It's Rob Heinsu and Jonathan Tweet's new game, right. Um, right? And that has you know the, the kind of the old school Renaissance thing going the uh, for it, right? That's the press release. They're all like it. It's you know their idealized version of the the dungeon crawling games they were nostalgic for and and this that and the other so i'm curious from that perspective to again it's this question of like what what the hell does that mean you know when jonathan tweet designs things i tend to listen because he's badass and rob heinz is also badass so uh yeah so i'm curious to to know what the answer to, to that question is what is the the experience that they're nostalgic for. Yeah. Uh, I, when I sort of think about that, I wonder if it's a reaction to the way that Dungeons and Dragons went um, with fourth edition. And, yeah. And, and along those lines, whether, you know, people are, you know, like looking for a time when, you know, they didn't have, and you, I'd be interested to see which side of the line you fall on this or whether you could take it or leave it. But I like strategy games. I like, you know, Warhammer, Necromunda, that type of stuff. Oh, yeah. I like role-playing, but I don't like it when miniatures show up in my game. If there's a dice or somebody puts an X on a map, that's good for me. I don't want to move my little guys around. I don't want to worry about how far they can go at any given time because it feels too much like I'm playing a war game and not enough like I'm playing a, a role-playing game. Right. I mean, my biases now are very heavily into like the the narrative, attempting to create emotionally relevant fiction through play kind of games. Uh, my biases in that regard at this point are pretty well documented, I'm sure. sure. But it's, you know, it's one of those things. Like, I have a hard time making value judgments about any of that kind of stuff because I examine, especially since I've gotten into design, I attempt to examine the properties and the intent of a design as something separate from my own particular tastes. Sure. So I, you know, D&D 4th edition, uh, I I don't think anybody would be surprised by by my saying that in a lot of ways that game was not necessarily my preferred cup of tea. Sure. But, you know, I'm also extremely lazy. Uh, so uh, that's, you know, that's 30, that. 30,000 words a week doesn't sound very lazy to me, but... Well, you know, when you got to pay rent. Uh, but anyway, 
uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention or whatever. But um, but at the same time, I look at, at D&D 4th Edition, I look at its design, and, and I, I feel that it does what it was supposed to do well. Yes. Right? So, sure. um, so it's one of those things. And I've played it. I've played D&D 4th Edition, and, you know... So I, I think it's a matter of setting your expectations appropriately. If I know I'm going to be playing D Fourth Edition, it means that I'm buying into a certain experience. I show up at the table prepared for that experience, sure. um, and you know, if everything goes well, I get it. I really do look at it that way, which is, I guess, why a lot of this categorization tends to puzzle me. Yes. Right? I, I like to look at every every design individually. Uh, I like. I like to look at it for for what it says it's supposed to do and evaluate it on the basis of whether it does that or not. And then, you know, the question of then do I like it or not, right, is almost the least important question at that point in time, right? Yeah, um, for sure. So maybe you're right. It could be that this is like a, a response because, I, you know, yeah, D&D 4th Edition has uh, a structures itself in a, in a different way than 3rd Edition did and, and certainly than previous editions did. Um, so yeah, it, it might be a response to that, but my response to that is if there's a market for it, oh yeah, then awesome. Like, I guess, I guess that's what, I I guess I have a problem, like not a problem. I guess I I respond very viscerally to the, the idea of a, of a reaction too, because like, it's very easy to look at, at that in a negative sense. Like it's reacting to this this bad thing that happened and I, right. I, right. And I, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I, uh, I, I look at it as, um, if somebody has identified it, uh, if a designer is passionate about an experience that they want and they want to design a game that meets that experience and people want it. Awesome. Yes. Uh, like, yeah, it's an inspiration like, for rather than a reaction to, Right, yeah, uh, and you know, I mean, but I, I would, I would hate for any, almost any game idea to be born purely out of out of negativity. Sure. Like I, I like it. It would be horrifying to me, right, to hear somebody say, "Well, I'm making this game because Watsy really fucked up with D and D Fourth Edition, and right. now I have to make this." Right, like right. that's horrible. Right, like yeah. what, like why, why? Why start from from an energy like that? Yeah, I, I don't think that would necessarily sustain itself either. And or alternatively, it could end up becoming you know, it wouldn't be an unholy trinity of role playing games anymore. To become you know, like there'd be there'd be four of them, and therefore it's just a game based on game based on hate. But um, you mentioned that when you go to a table, um, you know, you know what you're going to get, um, and that sort of ties a little bit into my next question, which is if you could only be a player or a GM. Which would you choose? A GM. I would be a GM. Uh, most of my uh, role-playing career, I've been a game master. Um, so I think that I have that skill set built up a lot more strongly than I do as a player. So we were talking about ownership before, right? Right. Um, in in games, it's, it can be more difficult for me to play in games that are less collaborative with the creative input. Sure. Because I find myself wanting to own things, to yeah. own content. Sure. Um, so I have had that problem where I've gone to a table where the, the expectation at the table was that the GM 
had the uh, the the primary content authority and and it was a, a more passive relationship the players were intended to like react to yada 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 so then you know we're playing and i start talking and i start making shit up that i'm not authorized according to the contract at that table to make and then you know things get weird and yada 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 <laughs> like i've had i've had that problem more lately because i am a so used to being a gm most of the time and b when i'm not a gm playing in tables where there's a very shared very uh decentralized sense of authority over over that kind of stuff so if i had to choose gun to my head i would probably remain a gm yeah i think most people are are emphatic what one way or the other i haven't encountered too many people that are that are on the fence about that one and and i think that uh you know that being a being a systems designer it must be kind of difficult to to not be peering under the hood while, while you're playing and being a gm would to a degree would would force you to you know, to stop analysing, you know, stop metagaming your, your own game, you know, by, by being responsible for all these characters and making sure everybody's having a good time and responding to all these character cues and all that sort of thing, you know, to a certain degree I would imagine would shut off that part of your brain. But as a player, do you find you've got more downtime to start analysing what's actually going on? Well, I, I'm, at this point in time, I'm a little crazy <laughs> because I analyse everything about everything when i i sit down now like i can't i can't shut it off so i am like watching the other players at the table in little momentary reactions when do they smile when a thing happens what do they what do they laugh about what what um what causes frustration or consternation who who plays actively or passively compared to to somebody else is somebody you know uh, taking the spotlight often or are they giving it away what is the the game system doing to to mess with that like I, as a player or gm like i'm i it's a very high it takes a lot of energy to do it now for me because i can't stop paying attention to all of that stuff do you wish you could uh no i mean i i, I um i still enjoy myself uh i think it's just where my head's at Oh, no, it's not a judgment call. I just wonder, like, some people, they say, you know, like, I wish I could stop seeing it in a certain way. Like, when you learn something, sometimes it's hard not to to see the cogs spinning in the background, and it stops being, you know, a wonderful product and starts Uh, being a fascinating machine. Well, uh, I mean, I certainly still have a lot of very, what I consider to be powerful, visceral experiences at the table. Um, I don't know. It It all seems to operate simultaneously for me. Uh, it's a, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to pin down. Like it's hard to articulate it because there's so much going on in my brain when I'm gaming. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I don't prep. Right. Well, that kind of leads into the next question, which is when you're a GM, how much, how much preparation do you do and, and what's the nature of it? As little as possible. And, uh, that also affects the, the type of games that I play. So there's another bias for you, right? Like, um, uh, the more a game can be run completely off the cuff, the more likely it is that I am am going to enjoy it. Um, like we, like I said, I'm lazy. I find that if the more I prep, the less surprised I'm going to be. Right. And and that bothers me 
Uh, it bothers me. It's not an ideal experience for me. How about the, we'll, we'll say that sure. I I like to come to the table with uh, as on, the minimal amount of information I need in order to present a compelling prompt yes. to the players to do whatever they're going to do, and then I prefer to react to it in the moment and you know have and react with the npcs and 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 what they want and need and now what are they going to do because the the player characters did this and and you know i like to to participate in that sense of the unexpected sure oh and i don't and i don't feel like i can effectively do that if i come to the table with a whole pile of notes and i have all of these encounters and scenes sketched out and uh and this that and the other uh so yeah i um uh, I, I i like to to play the ball where it lies right uh so do you have a i know you don't have like notes specifically for for setups and, and stuff like that but presumably before the person comes to or the, the players come to the table you've you've settled on a game that you're going to play yeah, I like to talk a lot with my groups about, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to play? What's the premise? What are we what are we into? What do, what do these characters care about? You know, setting expectations, managing expectations is is what I I like to do a lot of. Um where I will take notes is when we create stuff emergently at the table, I will write it down. I tend to keep fairly detailed series bibles you know of of um of things only so that over time there's a greater sense of consistency and right. and and this that and the other so i don't just like i don't i i definitely don't want to come across as saying that like consistency does not matter to me at all and i i could give or take it but right. uh, i prefer for for everything that we establish about the campaign to come emergently from from playing it to come from discovery sure. ra- rather than from prescription. Right. Uh, so, um, so at, I'll have those notes and I will usually have a firm sense of what the relevant NPCs want and need and how, how far they will go to get what they want. Right. Um, and then um, presume that there will be enough stuff in the air to make that interesting. Right, you've sort of effectively anticipated two of my next three questions. So I'll go with my, my third question, which is, um, let's just say, for example, you decide you want to talk about, you want to play a game and it's set in feudal Japan. Okay. Although you don't have any um, specific ideas about what's going to go on, do you put a lot of effort into researching the setting? So even though the characters are going to you know, be reacting organically, in order to present a, a, a scene that is you know, at least evocative whether it be accurate or not it, is beside the point well it, it it depends that it's to me that it's very idiosyncratic depending on what the group on what the group wants right like um i played in a gerp swashbucklers game okay right. that was um really interesting and and uh, the gm i was playing in this and the gm based it on francis drake's circumnavigation of the world right and uh, his sea voyages, and that's what it, I mean. It was he used his story, and he got really big into the history of it. And we researched like all these accounts, and and he used that in order to make the the scenarios for the game. And in that game, right, 
those touchstones of authenticity were very important to our enjoyment of the game because because we had established as an expectation. Like we talked about this and he pitched this game to us and he said, you know, I want to do this historical game and I want it to be Drake and I want it to be uh, – Accurate, as accurate as we can be, you know, still giving some license for, you know, the, the, the vagaries of adventure fiction. And we were all like, yeah, absolutely. That sounds awesome. Let's do the research. Let's get involved in this thing. Let's, you know, right. uh, and that was a, a point of enthusiasm. Um, there are other games that I've played in where they're like, I, I want to be about as accurate as your average samurai film. And if it gets more accurate than that... I, or, or, or if we stray vastly from uh, the expectations, if we put Western narrative devices in it without realizing that wouldn't be there, brother, sister, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I, it, it's, it's idiosyncratic. Like that's one of the reasons why I like to have a lot of preliminary discussion because that's when I get to find that information out. Okay, we're going to play a feudal uh, – a game in feudal Japan – uh, how how deep into that do we want to get? Do we want to say, well, it's, it's you know early Tokugawa era, and this, that, and the other? Do we want to do the research and, and establish that as part of the, the opening premise, and mm. you know, and this, that, and the other? Do we want to put somebody in the group in charge of that? Do we want to make somebody in the group do what researches the history and minds the store in that regard, like right. during the game? Um, do we care? You know, um, so I'm, I, I'm open to a wide variety of responses in that regard, depending on what the group is, is into. And of course that can change because like, you know, oftentimes as people, we can be very bad at identifying what it is we actually want. Sure. So it can turn out <laughs> during the game that you've done all this research and then everyone says, no, we really just, we don't want to get too much deeper than like Wikipedia and the list of samurai movies we like. It turns out, and then you're like, okay, cool. Well, then you go with that. Yeah, sure. So that's sort of really, if I can encapsulate your, your answer there, because um, people will fall along a, uh, along a continuum here from um, a lot of very specific preparation to, to very little uh, preparation. But I would say that um, the bare minimum of, of things that you should consider if, you, if you're going to be a free-form GM or just want to give it a try just to see what happens, because I absolutely agree. You know, the two magical moments for me as a GM is, one, when an NPC just suddenly comes to life and starts speaking, and, and the other one is when you get a synergy between different story ideas that suddenly present this beautiful, crystal-clear, golden trajectory that you had never considered before and, and without needing to you know, coax and cajole the characters onto this predetermined line you have. You know, everybody's right. on, they're on the bus and they're travelling to this destination, and it's something that you've kind of collectively uh, put together. Um, right. But, but three things I think that, and probably the first one I would say is, is consistency. It's all very well being, being free-form, but like you say, you know, making notes about truths that you have agreed upon in the right. game in previous sessions, by right. not observing those truths, you're kind of violating the player's expectations and, and, and shifting the goalposts in a way that people aren't going to necessarily enjoy because they've already invested in this, this shared idea. Right. Um, the, the next one would be um, NPC motivations. Your NPCs may not be very crystallized to start with, but if you want to try and keep the story um, going and you want to maintain that consistency, and, but you want to create some drama, then right. spending some time considering your NPCs and their motivations as that relates to this developing story arc is a good way to create depth and right. to you know to help your players invest in the story and also keep it interesting for yourself. And and then the last one is if, if you're going to pick a specific era or you're going to 
create some uh, world that's completely separate uh, from from any that we that we know, um, having those those touchstones now whether they're agreed upon together or whether they're something that you perhaps come up with and the players buy into, just those those anchoring points so that you're not totally adrift without any real solid concept of what isn't isn't possible in your in the world is is something that's uh, worthwhile considering as well. Right. Um. If if I may add to your com- comment about uh, about NPCs. Sure. Uh, I will say this. I usually attempt to start with the most simple and obvious conflict-laden prompt I can. Um, My NPCs tend to be very thin when they start because all I know about them is whatever the PCs want, the NPCs want them to not have it or want it for themselves. Right. And whatever I have to invent to make them want that then that's who they end up being. Right. But I always start as as simple, and I think generally free, like, I mean, the the short form of it is study improv. But, I mean, if you're not going to study improv, right, the, the, yes. the, very, the very first rule is simple and obvious is best. Yes. And then where you get the complexity is in layering, right? So you yeah. start very simple, and then, and then it, as, as you said... You develop these notes over time. Okay, so in the first session, this NPC acted in X, Y, and Z way because I wanted to present the most conflict to the player characters as I could. Right. But now there are established truths about that NPC because of what I did in that first session. Now that's a touchstone that I go back to, right. and and that's where the consistency starts, starts right. to build over time. So the complexity, the complexity is emergent, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. At, the, at the beginning. I would say as as simply as you can put NPCs in the way of the PCs do so. Yeah. Trust yourself to find the complexity as you go, right? Yeah. And and that sort of goes a little bit to even if you are somebody that likes to put a lot of preparation into your games, you know, as as the characters move further into your story, you know, you can bring those details into focus. If you go to the trouble and you you mentioned this before uh, about, you know, putting a whole bunch of research in and then you come back the next week and everybody wants less detail, they want less and you've put all this this work in. It's not necessarily wasted, but right. if you want to, you know, really give your players a sense that they're participating in telling the story, then just creating these, you know, like really flimsy outlines to start with and then allowing those to morph along the lines of the interest of your, uh, of your characters, right? That's, that's what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they, because, uh, you know, okay, again, it's a question, it, it comes back to a, a sense of, maybe ownership is a bad word for this, but I think it comes back to a sense of, 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 of ownership, I think that a, a lot of I, as a player, I can't, I shouldn't speak for all players, right? But I, I as a player, want a sense that my decisions um, have significance, that my decisions create meaning, right? Yes. Um, and what's the point of playing uh, otherwise, right? Right. What's the point of playing otherwise, right? Well, I mean, some people would say that the point of playing is to, you know, um, see if you actually can beat, you know. Twentieth uh, level monster X and his and goons Y Z and A. Sure. Uh, and I'm totally awesome with that too. I can't beat them. I envy people who can. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I want to know that. So, so as a GM, when I step up to the plate with nothing, yes. right? I don't have a choice. No. But to make, but to give 
significance to the player's decisions because they're literally shaping mine. Yes. Right? So there is is no, um, you know, at what point in time am I falling into whatever the GM had pre-planned or – or, mm. or what, what, what impact did I make? Like, what, how did I get the GM to divert from his plans or whatever? This and the other, no, because like, it's all, I have no idea what my story is going to be about until the player characters say, we want to do X. Yes. Absolutely. So, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's, and I think that that creates a very, organic response in the moment because when they floor me right when the players surprise me and floor me i let them know i'm totally transparent but i'm like man i was not expecting you to do that let me take a five let me take a a step commercial break let me take a step back from the table right yes and and players like that i think you know a lot of people really identify with that oh check it out we made the gm like look at how awesome we are because like the gm uh, now has to think about what we're going to do, but I think that, that like is authorized. Like players uh, feel a sense of authority, right? When that that happens. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I advocate that in, in my book. Is you know, don't don't take don't feel that you have to plow on with the story. If something really cool comes up that you haven't considered, then what you want to do is just take that, like you say, commercial break or timeout or whatever you want to call it, and just absorb all the stuff that, that's happened and then and then proceed with the story. I think missing out on an opportunity to fully absorb what somebody's come up with is really selling the idea, at least the story game end of things. You know, selling right. the whole idea short. Right? Don't 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 rush on. Like let it let something like that gestate for a moment. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, well, and you know, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like I know, like I've talked to some GMs, like really. That like what what they want to exude right at the table is this I, this sense of of utter mastery, this sense mm. of utter com- this, of confidence. You know, yes. I can't sympathize with that um, at all. Like I find it puzzling. Like a lot of the a couple of the GMs that I know that I've talked to that are very into heavy prep. Like, like that's part of the reason for the heavy prep because like I I don't want to to be seen as being caught off my guard. Like I want to. To, to be the the master of this game, right? Like, and, right. and 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 have the players understand that I'm in charge and I I know what's going on and 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 I I have the this authority. So things are not going to go into left field. They're not going to go south. Yes. Yada, yada, yeah. yada. But yeah. but at the same time, I've never had any group of players that I've been with um, think I was a less less competent GM for allowing them to surprise the hell out of me. No, sure. And right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, and the, you know, the reason why I mention that is because, like, I know that that is because GMing is fucking scary, right? In, oh, it in is. In a yeah. sense. And that's, right? Like, yeah, you've got to be able, it's one of those things, it's almost like public speaking. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, some people, that's their number one most terrifying thing. And, and game mastering to a degree is that, like, plus a whole bunch of other, whole bunch right. of other things which are which are difficult to do at the same time. So, you know, that's, that's sort of that question, would you rather be a player or a GM? Most people have a visceral response to that, like, no, I don't want to be, I don't want to have to be on and do all this stuff. And some people are like, yeah, that's me, I want to do that. I want to be 20 right. characters. Yeah, yeah, I hear about, like, I hear that. I want to, I want to, uh, to be, I don't want to have to be on all the time. And, and yeah, it's, and I guess it's one of the, one of the reasons why I'm, I, uh, I guess what puzzles me a, a little bit, um, uh, because I don't feel, I certainly don't feel the obligation when I game master to be on all the time. What I feel is, um, 
the obligation to respond to the player's energy in a uh, supportive or authorizing or empowering way or whatever whatever it is you want to call it. I've had plenty of sessions where I've come to the table off off for some reason or another. I'm tired. I'm stressed out. I'm hungover. You know, yeah. uh, uh, whatever. And like. The players have been like, all right, so from the last session, we want to do X, we want to do Y, we want to do Z. And that guy who's given us so much crap last session, I'm going to track him down at his plate, you know, and they just like throw all of this proactive energy at me. And then I'm like, okay, awesome. I have all these things to react to, right? It's like they've, they've, they've done the work for me. Yes, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, it's one of the hardest things as a GM to deal with is players that are giving you no energy. They're just, they're just sponges. Now, if you're the type of person that likes to have everything set out, those are the guys you want to play with, the ones that just right. want to react. But if you want somebody who's going to be proactive or start giving you stuff, like giving you energy as a GM, then absolutely, I'm, I'm with you on that one 100%, Lenny. Like, right. people bring energy, they bring preparation, that just fuels you as a GM. Right. Well, and, and, and you know, just to be, to be absolutely clear, you know, I mean, sometimes it is awesome to sit there and go, yes, please tell me where the next batch of monsters are so that I can fucking put my sword into them. You know, yes. like, I'm, I'm definitely not bashing, like... Uh, the the high prep, high authority GM no, with reactive players, and it's I'm just you know I'm uh, for completeness sake I feel it's no, necessary. No, to... absolutely not, and I don't, I don't have any problem with that at all. That just does something that doesn't fit for me. But right. I, I mean I really like um, I like uh, war games for a similar sort of reason. Like I like having my my troops in a certain configuration. I like executing a plan and having it and having it right. come off. And to a degree, that's the same sort of thing. Like I used to love like when I like I love putting together dungeon crawls. Like when when I was a teenager, I loved putting together dungeon dungeon crawls and getting all the monsters lined up and having everything sort of perfectly lined up. And I got a great sense of satisfaction of putting together a what's effectively a, a machine or a or a um, like a, an ecosystem that and, and right. that sort of plays into that idea. But then um, I found that games that have, I've more uh, I've more gravitated towards are more at the narrative end where I where I like that collaboration. But you know, like horses for courses, man. Like if you're into <laughs> if you're into role play, <laughs> that's that's great. Not everybody's on the, not everybody's into the, exactly the same thing. And and I can I can strap on a, a sword and and you know kill those uh, kill the goblins or whatever it might be as happily right. as, as the next person. But if I'm running a game, I'm at the I'm at the free form free form end for sure. So right? Yeah. It, it's it's really it's weird because like it, in in a sense it seems does it seem like like almost masochistic to some degree, like because like I, I do like I get into experiences when I'm GMing. It, it's it's almost like I thrive in like the high stress of not knowing anything, right? Yes, sure. Um, and there's there is sometimes a part of me that's like, man, why do I do this to myself? But like I enjoy it. I've always found I I just love how creative players are. I, yes. I guess that's you know I mean that's yeah. And you need to give them room to be creative as well. Yeah. I, I mean, just to be able to, to aggregate all of that creative input, to synthesize it into a yes, whole, for sure. I think is awesome. Yeah. So that's like, I, that's, that's the experience that I go in for. Right. And um, with that in mind, with everybody having, you know, their two cents worth, what's the perfect number of people to role play? Because incorporating all those ideas becomes more and more of a challenge the more people you have at the table. I, I, will, I will say that, uh, yes, I... I prefer three players and a GM for games that have GMs and three or four players for games that do not. Me GMing for three people has always been kind of a, an ideal, 
an ideal number for me. Right. I'm, I'm the same way, but a number of people have mentioned this to me before, and it's not something that I had considered um, until they did, which was, you know, they like to have four people, four players right. and one GM, just in case one person can't get there. Because as soon as you have three people, you've got that interesting dynamic. But if you've got three people and one person is away, you go to that two-person dynamic. And, and I said, and you may have a feeling about this, but my feeling is that if you've got three people in a GM, you've got a regular amount of preparation. But as soon as you go to two people and one GM, you've got so much more, not necessarily preparation to, but you're on that much more because you don't have that, you don't have the people, you know, pinging off each other in the same way that you get with three people. And I've found myself in this situation, and, and maybe you can empathize with, where I'm, because there's only two players, I'm playing, you know, two people in this scene. And so I'm right. talking to myself and I catch myself like, like I'm playing two parts at the same time. And the, the players are just sort of watching me talk with myself. And, and I, find, right. I find that weird. Um, yeah, I've had those experiences before. Uh, I don't have them now, basically, because I cop out. I mean, it's not really copping out and saying that facetiously, but... Um, with the groups that I play in now, it's it's almost all the games that I'm... No, I think all the games I'm playing now are three players in a GM. And if I'm the GM and somebody doesn't show up, we usually just play Fiasco. Right. Like, yeah. we don't even... Like, we play another a different game. Right. Or, you know, a, a, a Zombie Cinema is really good for that. Like, we have, like, filler games. So, I like, we kind of don't even... Eat, engage that problem right like if, if somebody can't show up to the game we don't play our regular game we just right. play something else right and so you've got a pretty reliable group because that's one of the things that i find um, like i i talk in my a book a little bit about embracing the idea of of people in your game that are there because they want something to do but one of the problems with that is that if something more interesting comes up they're more likely to do it, and so you're, you're making your group a little bit vulnerable to that same to that problem of not having enough people to, to get that dynamic going. Um, right. But have you found that as you've got older, that's become less of a problem? Well, I mean, that's the funny part too is that I I, I wouldn't necessarily know if the if the groups are more or less reliable. I know someone will show up, right? Sure. So it's just I mean, it's just it comes down to kind of a standing agreement if. Everybody who is in the gaming group shows up. We will play Game X. Right. If fewer than that show up, we will play games Y through B, you know. Right. So how often do you role play and for how long? Oh, gosh. Well, I um, basically at this point in time spend I – a Sunday is my gaming day. Um, I have two groups that alternate during the day on alternating weeks. Right. So I play one game bi-weekly, and then in the off weeks of that game, I play another game bi-weekly. So for me, it's every week. Right. And they're usually, you know, uh, three to five-hour stretches in the in the afternoon. Right. Um, and then I also have a game that I play at night on Sunday. Um, you know, for about the sessions are usually about three hours, and that's a game that I play over Skype. Right. Uh, and then I have another Skype game that meets intermittently whenever the the four of us can get together, and that's always scheduled ad hoc. Right. Um, so I'm in four games running regularly or semi-regularly right now. Right. Right. That seems to be a pretty standard amount of time for a game session is sort of like this three to five hour 
um, right. time, time period. And are you guys very focused about getting started? Like, I know that for, for me, my, my social interaction is to a degree limited to that, that role-playing during the week. Like there's, I don't have really any other, any other things on, on the go, and I find that it usually takes about half an hour or so for people to catch up at the start, talk about what they've got yeah. going on in their week and all that sort of thing. Yeah, we try to build in that lead time um, where, or at least I, I give a lot of respect to that lead time because, because like, you know, like I said, I mean, I role playing is social activity, right? Like sure. I, um, play role playing games with people that I otherwise would like to hang out with. Sure. So yeah. So there's definitely like, uh, there's a cap at the beginning and a cap at the end Sure. that sometimes cuts into that three to five hours and sometimes doesn't, right. um, where yeah, it's it's you know catching up on on what's going on with each other and each other's yeah. lives and you know we you know my we're we're kind of meta um, most of my groups are kind of meta um, in that they contain a lot of people who are very interested in examining what we're doing right so a lot of the after game talk is like post mortem right on the game like. What was cool? What was not cool? What are we looking forward to? You know, expectation. You know, revising the expectations as as, as we go. Right now, being a, a game designer, um, and this may be a, maybe a long answer, and maybe for for another podcast, but just in a, a sort of in a sentence or two, I, when I'm play when I was playtesting my game, and even now when I'm just playtesting a scenario that I might be considering running at a at a convention. The first thing I do when, I, when we sort of do the post-mortems, people are a little bit reluctant when they see you put a lot of work into something to say, you know, this was bad or that was bad. I always cast the first stone myself. I said, this didn't really work for me. What didn't work for you? Do you have any advice for people that are trying to get some, you know, real truthful feedback about about um, what they, people think about their game? Um, well, I, <clears throat> I think it's a, a lot of it has to do with who the, the – um, the person who the people are like one of the games that I uh, am playing in, I'm playing with Ryan Macklin, right. who, who is my, one of my editors on the Dresden files and this is somebody that I work with frequently. Right. So we have the kind of relationship where we can, can give hard criticism. I, I think that if I were going to give a, a piece of advice it's that do the do the best that you can because what I've experienced the most when people are reluctant to give criticism is that they are reluctant because they are not certain if their criticism is valid, which is a kind of a weird thing. Like a mm. a lot of a lot of people are like, well, this didn't exactly jive for me, but maybe it was just me. Like people are yes. really quick to dismiss their opinions. As as being invalid because – and I've run into this a couple of times because not everybody that I game with is a designer, you know? Right. So I've gotten that a couple of times of like, well, what – you know, what business do I have telling you about, sure. you know, this, this, that or the other design thing when I'm – you know, I'm not a designer, which is like – it's just horrible. Like I, I hate it when people say that to me because, I mean, the fuck do I know? Um, You're asking about enjoyment, right? Like, what did you... Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, this, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, everybody's a designer. You know, but... Uh, so I would say it, the best piece of advice I can give is encourage the feedback 
right? Like, don't like try to, to keep people from judging their own feedback before they've given it. Right. You know, even if, if it, if it turns out that it, they say something that's like really petty and was like a momentary thing. And yeah, it might not produce something that you need to take into consideration for next time, but that doesn't mean that the, it's not worth soliciting. Like right. how, how can you evaluate a, a, a piece of feedback, how can you give it a value if you haven't heard it? Right. So that's what I try to do is I try to say, you know, don't, you know, try to, don't worry about whether or not like what you have to say makes any sense or is like, don't, don't judge the validity of your opinion. Just give me the opinion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let, just hand it over. I'll be yeah, the judge of that. Yeah, just over. Let, right. Let me as the as the designer, as the person who's interested in feedback, let me make that call yeah. of, of, of whether or not there's value in, in what you, you have. Right, and I right? think that's a critical distinction, right? Like you need to consider yourself with, with value, right? right. Everything, everything is valid, but not necessarily right. everything has value. So don't worry about the value or, you know, or even worry about the validity. Just, just hand it over and let me be the arbiter of value. Right, yeah, because... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's weird. Like people, especially gamers, like I've noticed this in a lot, in a lot of gamers, I can say that I've noticed this is a phenomenon, right? People who have been playing games for 20 years, yeah. right? Undersell their authority to speak about role-playing games, which is ridiculous. You've been playing for 20 years. You know what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. And you've seen a lot of systems and you, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, how, how can, and you're you're speaking from a bank of experience that comes from somewhere, right? So, like, why, you know, why why the reluctance? You know, right? right. I mean, and that's probably because a lot of people think that. I mean, maybe their parents told them that they're all unique snowflakes, right? Like that's the <laughs> the you know the the idea that 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 okay, I'm a unique snowflake, but the rub of that is that there's nobody else like me, so my my opinion has no value because I'm only talking about me. Whereas in actuality, right. you know, not everybody is a, is a unique snowflake and there are probably, you know, a portion of the gamers that are exactly like you and that's why, you know, why we're soliciting these responses, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have no idea where it comes from, but it is something that I've noticed a lot. Um, and that's what I try to do. I try to reassure people, you know, hey, look, like I'm not looking for, like, you make a, a profound statement on... The thing, just you know, uh, <laughs> I was I, I was confused. Right, I was confused about what dice I had to pick up in this fight. Okay, well, let's now talk about that. What, right. like, what, what was the confusion? And maybe it is. Well, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Maybe it's that. Right. Maybe it's a design thing I need to fix. But in, until we know it, yeah, until it's out in the air, yep. you can't evaluate it. So yeah. So changing tack completely here. Sure. Should males play females and you could take that either like males should play females or you can take that as like is it something that that uh, it should be okay for for guys to do uh yes i'm a bit puzzled that that uh, that it's a question okay well one of the the sort of the ideas that have been developing in connection with this this question is um Part of role playing, I guess, is uh, you know playing something out, and and if right. you're playing out, um, if you're playing out, you know what it might be like to be a female character, then you've got you've got two. There are two sort of things to consider. The first is: is there a game, 
effect of being a female. Like, for example, in Legends of the Five Rings, if you want to play a, a particular type of character, then those characters are all girls. So, you know, it, it's by default, you know, you, you're a girl. I mean, obviously... Well, what, you... I, what, I, what I guess I mean by I'm surprised that it's a question is that presuming... Okay, well, not only am I surprised it's a question, but I'm surprised there is an answer, that I have an answer. And the answer is this. Presuming that the intention is not to be insulting or demeaning, then clearly yes. I don't see any reason why anyone should be barred from playing anything that their imagination can conjure. Right, absolutely. I'm I'm absolutely on the same page with you. So I'm, you know, it's, what is more interesting to me about the question is, the situation that it implies exists yes. for us to ask it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it's always been a non-issue for me because I've GM'd for most of my role-playing career. Right. So I have been accustomed to pretty much my entire experience in the hobby. I'm the GM, so clearly I'm going to play characters that are male. Clearly I'm going to play characters that are female. Clearly, in some games, I'm going to play characters who are transgendered or cisgendered or, or, or anything on the spectrum. Sure. I'm going to play characters of all orientations, races, shapes, sizes, whatever, because I'm everyone else that you aren't. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, I guess from that perspective, I have been fortunate enough to be spared the pain of noticing. Right. The bigger question uh, along with that, or at least as I've asked it, I've sort of formulated it, is if you're playing a character, then you're, like I was saying, you know, you've, you've take, you're experiencing something through uh, playing that character. And, yeah. and this, doesn't, this is not necessarily for or against. It's just a, the, something that I've been interested in people's reaction to, is that yeah. if you're going to play a female, and most uh, game, and, and this is a secondary question with this, but, uh, but I'll get to that in a sec. Um, mm-hmm. If you are going to play a female, um, and your game master is a male, how authentic, are you going to get that authentic experience of being a female if your game master is a male and is not particularly empathic or doesn't get that, um, not as able to convincingly or at least appropriately interact with your your female character? Well, I, I would you get authenticity? I would say no. By default, but I would say that because there's no guarantee that what you have to bring to the table reflects authentically on what you're playing if you don't if you don't have the knowledge, right? Like how 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 can you be um uh whatever you explore hypothetically playing a certain kind of character, there's no guarantee that that's going to be authentic. No, certainly. right. You know, if I if I decide to play a uh, uh, well, I mean, let's go for the gold. If I decide to play a uh, a German Jew in a in a World War II era game, right, right, yeah, uh, I'm still playing that character, right? Like it is part and parcel to to I bring whatever it is that I bring as a as a person to that character right there's no there's no guarantee that anything that comes out of my mouth during that game that anything I do speaks authentically to the experience of 
German Jews in World War II. Maybe, maybe if we do a lot of research, like if that's something that we think is important, uh, and I would hope that if you're going to going to pursue a portrayal like that, then you might think it's important. But um, unless we do a lot of research, uh, you know, and we really police ourselves and this, that, and the other, there's no guarantee of authenticity. I don't, I, I don't necessarily even know that that's, that is a, a, the goal in choosing, in choosing to do something like that. Um, uh, so it's difficult because I, I, I'm not necessarily sure that playing a lot of female characters as a GM has taught me anything about how females experience anything. Right. Um, I can hope that they did because I can hope that, that I'm a, uh, uh, a sensitive dude that is, is learning and taking in experiences and, and applying what I know of the world to play and that, you know, create certain things. But I, I there's no guarantee that you're going to ever get a look outside your own, your own box, your own point of view, you know? Uh, and I, I think it's, uh, man, I don't want to say naive, but I think I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think it, it, it's potentially naive to expect that. Sure. Yeah, you can only, I mean, the, just like you can only bring your experiences to your your player, the, the GM can only bring their experiences to their uh, to their NPCs. And, and the question that I was going to ask along with this was, if you have a female GM, will you get more of an authentic experience playing a female? Um, well, you certainly... We'll probably get better feedback. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, I for mean, sure. I for mean, sure. um, it's, but see, but that's even like, you know, God, it's such a, like, what is the female experience, right? Like one woman does not speak for all women. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. that's the, that's the problem I, I think with, with, uh, you know, trying to, to, uh, that's the, one of the problems that, that is very obscuring in the discussion, I guess is what I'm going to say, is that, yes, there are certain elements of the experience uh, of, of a certain person's experience uh, that are universal to other people, right? Or else we wouldn't be able to communicate with each other at all, right? Like right. there there are, are commonalities in human experience. Right. And yes – one can make the argument um, uh, very strongly that there are certain kinds of experience that are common to females throughout history to, to you know, to, to uh, well, to males throughout history to, to um, but you, yeah, you can subdivide experience that way. Absolutely. But, you know, um, man, it's it is it is such a hard you can never allow yourself to believe that you have a definitive experience of anything sure absolutely uh, absolutely um so what i would say is if you're playing a female character and you are a male and your gm is female what you will get a better feedback on or a more authentic experience of is the female experience as that particular individual understands it. Right. To the degree to which that speaks globally or not, who knows, man. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it, 
if I if I could if I could could easily tackle that thing, I uh, I would be I would I would not be designing role playing games. I would be <laughs> doing be, something else. You'd be the pony businesswoman of the year. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> A little bit obscure, perhaps, for some people. Um, so, uh, um, so along with that question, then, and, and uh, this may help to bring a little bit of focus in, is there genuine catharsis available from role-playing in that case? I believe so, because, um, because like I said, there are human experiences that are common. Um, you know, uh, we have very similar, I mean, emotional needs. You know, uh, every, people... People um, want to be validated and loved. People want to belong. You know the basic. You know, I mean, whether you're a you you like Maslow or you like whoever, right? There's there's a lot of data to suggest that there are certain elements of the human experience that are universals. Um, I think we overestimate in some cases how universal they are because I think cultural factors can sure. can change a lot of that. But but yeah, I think that there is that there's a genuine catharsis available in 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 uh role playing but uh i think you can't go looking for it sure yeah, you're right force because you're forcing it on the other players too right right yeah yeah you can't you have to you know you find it you know but yeah i certainly have experienced moments in in a game where you know i i, I believe i've achieved Emotional catharsis in, in role-playing games, yeah. Sure. Okay, so yeah. taking another, like another right turn here or left turn, depending on how you look at it. Um, sure. Do, do you or should the GMs fudge roles? Oh, man. Um, Given uh, that we're not into the uh, should you roll at all territory. Right. Um, uh, here's what I will say. I'm going to be a bit coy and say if the GM has to fudge rolls in order to achieve something, a certain effect, a certain desired whatever at the table, it should be a red flag to the group that they need to reevaluate the tools they're using. Sure. So that's that's not an answer to your question. Well, it is. It is enough of an answer for for me. I, I don't know if people are looking for a, for a hard and fast rule, but you know, like uh, right. I think that that that, sum, that sums it up, right? Like it's uh, th- there's going back to a little bit what we were saying before. You know, you've got a you've to a degree. If you're going to play in a game, you have to accept that um, the GM is trying to create a synthesis of everybody's ideas, and and in doing so, they do have a not so much a responsibility, but they do have a certain latitude for helping to create some of these these truths that perhaps players don't necessarily have, just by the sheer nature of some actions are opposed, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it's it's hard to say because because it, sometimes it can be hard to pin down the difference between what is a result that is actively detrimental to our enjoyment right. versus what is a result that I, in this moment, did not want to happen. Right. right. You know? I, so that's, it, that's, I mean, that's, that's hard to pin down. Right. Um, then, then you're into the whole, should I roll at all territory, right? So. Right. Well, right. I mean, yeah. Uh, 
sort of, sort of, kind of. Well, because I mean, when you play like the really, you know, one of the the elements of D and D, for example, that I think make D and D what it is, is the very real risk of of character death. Of uh, I, I will say somewhat arbitrary character death. Right. Although I know that there are some people who would argue with me that if you plan correctly and strategize well enough, then it will never be arbitrary. Sure. But um, those people are apparently a lot better at D&D than I am. So there's that question. So when the dice rolls, like when you do have that like string of bad dice luck, right? And you fail a bunch mm-hmm. of saving throws or the GM rolls crits a lot on you or mm-hmm. whenever the GM rolls damage dice, it maxes out. Right. And, and your character dies... That's uh, not something you wanted to happen. You didn't want your character to die just then. But if you've bought into the conceit of the game, that is not infringing upon your fun. Like, I don't, I don't think that, that if you've bought into the conceit of the game and you've bought into what the design does, yes. that, that the GM should necessarily fudge roles to keep you in the, no. the whatever. But what I have run into a lot with especially back when there was a, a not as wide a variety of systems available. And, and um, you know, I, I have played in a lot of D&D games where the, the DM wanted the player characters to be the protagonists in a story that took them from first to 20th level, from, from rags to becoming like, and facing the epic threat. And God, if that dude dies at 10th level, that can't happen. So the GM will fudge that this, that, and the other. And, and, and I would say that I, that's when I would insert my judgment at that point and say, maybe you're not using the ideal tool because you want something from this game that this design is not going to give you. Right, right. Right. And that's sort of the strategy The strategy game's end of the, of the role-playing spectrum, right, as opposed to the story game's end. Like, if you're trying to tell a story like that, you probably want a story game, right? Well, it can also be – it can also apply to people. I think it can apply to emulation and, and, and simulation. Right. You know, what they call simulationist play, not to – God forbid we start talking big model terms the entire <laughs> – the entire podcast might go up in flames, but um, uh, but uh, go on, burn it down a little bit, Lenny. Go ahead. Right. Well, no, that kind of play. Um, you know, if you're using a a, a tool set, a system that provides you inconsistent results with whatever it is that you're trying to to do, then that can also be equally as disturbing. I remember that when I was uh, doing some of my fake games, right. Yep. I I played because I try and play Cthulhu in everything. Right. Uh, somebody once told me that in reality every game I run is is Lovecraftian. Right. Uh, and that I actually do not know how to execute any of the genres. I would just <laughs> that. But but anyway, seems a little unfair. But the point being uh, that um, yeah, I was uh, um, played some Fate uh, system games. And I set them in a, in a Lovecraftian universe, and so there was, you know, the Lovecraftian stuff, and you could go insane in this, that, and the other. And one of the players figured out that one of the things that fate does as an engine is, is um, protect you as a protagonist, right? It gives you these opportunities to alter your roles and, and to um, uh, survive things that would normally kill your character off, right? Like you, sure. could, you, could, you could avert 
go mad and die, or you could find a way to make go mad and die work for you because if if you take your insanity as an aspect, then there's a way that you can use it as a bonus and this, that, and the other. And we were having this conversation in a bar, and he's like, I, I don't think I like this game. And I'm like, cool, why not? And he's like, because part of the fun of me playing Call of Cthulhu is not knowing when I'm going to go mad and die. Right. I'm not the star of a story. I'm a guy battling against adversity, yeah. hopelessly, trying to eke out as many moments as I can from the spiral. So if you give me all these tools to protect myself as a protagonist, then that suspense is gone. Right, that's part of the conceit, right? Right, and so, right, and so it can work the other way too, right? Um, uh, it's not necessarily just in, in that the, 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 the crunchy gamist versus the, you know, narrativist divide or whatever, you know, I've had, it, it can... There are all kinds of mismatches that you can end up with there. And I thought he had a a rather valid point. Um, And um, uh, luckily I had gotten all of the the system-y playtesting stuff that I needed out of that. Right. Um, And um, then I was like, uh, okay, so we don't necessarily have to do this anymore. Right. Uh, um. So, so hold on to that thought, Lenny, because that's going to play a little bit into my last question. But, but we'll get there here in a minute. So, sure. um, what's the best and/or most inspiring film or TV show for you? It doesn't necessarily have to be about role playing, but you're watching it. Wow, wow, that's cool. I want to play a game there, or that little element there is really cool, and I want to incorporate that now. I I can't be coy. I can't be coy and say the World Series of Poker, right? I'm presuming that's going to be an invalid answer. No, no, you can you can say that. if you want to prepare to just to stand by your answer, then go for it. People are interested in what okay. you say. Well, I, back when we were talking about what are the best, what what do I find are the best role playing books? Sure, right? Game yep. game mastering books. Um, the that it falls into that the world the world series of um of poker. Just watching how those people, um, because you get to see what everyone's hand is. Right. Right. So you get to get a piece of the in, in the of the information that you don't get when you're playing poker with people. So you get to see in the face of having this bad hand or, or having this good hand, how to, how do the, the people at the table try to play each other? And I think that that figures that kind of observation figures very heavily into what what you do with managing people, managing expectations, watching watching for tells, watching when when the player when the player does something and makes that that unconscious tick that tells you as a GM, I need to jump on this detail and that's really going to like fire up that guy's day because like he's giving me the tell that says I'm putting something out there that I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm all in on this idea. Right. I'm all right. I'm all in on this idea. Yeah. So the world series of poker, um, fictional content because I don't, I don't want to entirely be coy. Um, I like Joss Whedon shows and, and their dysfunctional familiness. Right. Um, and for their um, the way that they what one of the things that I really love in role playing games and inspires me in role playing games is characters who fuck up spectacularly. Right. I love spectacular failure, not deep protagonizing failure, not the kind of failure that says like I'm never going to get what I want, right? But the kind of of failure that says I am going to have to pay dear dear costs if I really really want this. Right. Um, and I think that there shows – a lot of Joss Whedon shows have that. I think Babylon 5 had it, The Wire, um, mm. uh, Breaking Bad. Um, there are always scales, right? Like right. You've got, to, you've, got to, you've, got to, you've got to 
pay off your success with your failure. Right. Well, and this general idea that actions have consequences. Yeah, oh, for sure. Right, um, which has become a much larger part, I think, of of, of the dramatics of uh, of television. Yes. Right. Sophisticated um, audience, right? They sort of expect that now, which is good because it sort of pushes writers just that much further, right? To try and make sure that they've covered all their angles, right? They dotted their eyes and crossed all their t's and creating a, a cohesive and believable narrative. Right. Um, so I really like I like shows where Actions clearly have consequences that are expressed in the progress of the show, and they build on one another. So it's not mm-hmm. like status – you return to status quo. Right. There's a problem during the episode, and then you solve it, and then you return to status quo. It's like there's a problem, and then you resolve it, but the resolution is messy. And that means the episode after, you're going to have to deal with some of that mess, but that creates another mess. And right. Like I, I'm – that general – that general narrative structure is something that speaks to me. Deal yes. is it? Uh, I don't know because um, you know I don't know. Life is a little like that. Well, absolutely, yeah, and that's <laughs> something. It's probably something that's that's evolved even within my lifetime of watching television. Right? There's the Dukes of Hazard when where they used to always be out testing some new uh, device on their car and then some bad guy would come into town and then this would happen and Boss Hog would get involved and then everything would be wrapped up at the end and then they go right back to as if that previous episode never never happened and that's not that's that's not reality. And, right. And having that sophistication in not only dramas now but also I think in, in comedies where you know the, right. the, the, the humour comes not from the situation. It's called a situation comedy but it they're not situation comedies anymore, to my mind. They're character comedies. Because right. some of the comedies that I enjoy the most are the ones where stuff is funny because you know the characters. Right. It's funny well, because, you know the, because you know the history. You mentioned The Office before, so I right. would definitely like put The Office in that, especially yeah, sure. the, the, the original, yes. the British Office. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I would, wow. That, that show, that, that show taught me what awkwardness was yeah yeah it's brilliant isn't it you... I, I i thought i knew what it was before i was wrong yeah yeah, <laughs> right. yeah it's, it's like you, you when you're watching it like it's you're sort of even squirming in your seat that when, when you're watching it right it's just uh, yeah it's yeah it's, it's something else um <laughs> so um this and this next question goes a little bit to what we were talking about before in regards to NPCs. Um, one of the things that, that I say in my book is if you're going to when you're going to tell a story, if you're just sort of starting out, this is sort of my advice to, to new GMs uh, sort of section is that have an idea where you think your story might go. Like have a, have a destination in mind. You may not actually end up getting there, but having a destination in mind gives you gives you a line at least to start with, no matter how squiggled or, or tangential it may become between where your players are starting and where, where you're finishing. And then the mm-hmm. next thing after that is to take, have a think about a villain. Right. right. Because in a lot of respects, your villain is your story. Now, if, you, right. if you're going to go freeform, then that villain molds itself to the motivations of the character, but still, the villain is the story. So with, with that right. in mind, who's your favorite villain and why? If I had to pick one right off the top of my head, I would say the operative from Serenity. Right. Um, and the reason why is because of his horrific self-awareness. Right. Uh, there's that scene in Serenity where, you know, he's, he's, oh, he's having what 
what um, Mal believes is going to be a a verbal back and forth, like a fight, you know, and he's, he throws something at the operative, like when the operative is blown away, all of the safe havens that serenity could possibly have gone to. Right. Right. And the operative comes on the screen and he says, you know, when your enemy goes to ground, leave no ground to go to, you know, and they're having this argument and, and, um, the operative is, is comparing the two of them is like, you, we're no different. This, that, and the other gives him that, that line. And then Mal says, I don't kill children to get what I want or something like that. And the operative very calmly says, I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, um, that particular character and, and maybe like, uh, Lex, Lex Luthor uh, in episode 12, I was talking with, uh, with Tim Brennan, I uh, know yeah, episode 12. Um, and we were talking about this idea where the only difference between Lex Luthor and Superman and why Lex Luthor is the bad guy and Superman is the good guy is that the story is told through Superman's eyes. So you've, right. got, you've got a villain, um, and he's only a villain because of the prism of, of the story. Right. Well, he's a, he's a true believer. The operative in Serenity is a true believer. He believes that the things that he's doing will be of benefit to society. He right. believes you never doubt his sincerity that he's making a better world. And those, to me, true, the true true believers, to me, are the scariest motherfucking people on the planet. And I mean yeah. that in both a good, and I mean that in both a good way and a bad way. Yeah, yeah, for you know, right? yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and that is what, like, I am very like villains who are false or cynical um, about what they themselves are doing. Yes. Turn me off. I'm not. I, I'm not attracted to them. I really like people who are genuine and honest, because they're because it's kind of terrible interacting with them because you can't say they're not honest, right? They're yeah. what makes them frightening is their honesty, yeah. is their their sense of of authenticity, of of genuineness, right, uh, or whatever. Um, and I. Uh, I'm, I might, I might actually at this point in time in my jamming career be kind of one note in that regard because I have very, very few opponents, bad guys. I would not even call them bad guys, right? Like antagonists in my campaigns who aren't true believers. Almost all of the opposition NPCs that I throw at PCs and games have a point of view that they believe in that is motivating them to do X. Right. Absolutely. And some of my players in previous games have commented that that makes them, on occasion, very frustrating to deal with because sometimes they have very relatable points of view. Yes, and that's that's one of the crucial things that I, that I say, um, and what I tried to do as well is that if you want your villain to resonate and be memorable, try to pick at least one facet of their character which the players can agree with and relate to. Right. Because then that adds that extra little layer of complexity. And, you know, it makes the, the whole idea just a little bit fuzzy, which I think for a compelling villain is important. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it can also lead to reversals. I've had yeah. games where certain of the player characters are like, no, I think this guy's right. Like, yeah. I think I think we do need to exterminate the village or do whatever horrible thing, yada, 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 because, like, because, you know, I've heard their argument and I agree with them. Right. 
and then that creates some things. Then it's not like the PCs versus the villains. Then it's this dynamic character who has the potential to change the point of view of the PCs or work the other way. Like, you know, I've had antagonists in campaigns where – you know, the confrontation was almost anticlimactic because the PCs rolled up on and explained their point of view and were like, uh, you don't have to do this to get what you want. And the, the NPCs like, oh, I thought I did. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much. Now that I, yeah. Now that I don't, right? Like, yeah, we, there's no reason why we have to keep, you know, and like, I, I just try to not presume Right. Any of any 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 of those particular outcomes like I, I, I don't like making I almost don't even like the word villains for that reason, because sure. it's really it's really just characters who want something that puts them in the PC's way. Right. Yeah, like the true meaning of the word antagonist. Right. Right. And like how and how do the PCs deal with that and how well, don't they? Right. Like, yeah. um, you know, so, yeah, the operative. He's he's batshit crazy, but I love him. <laughs> so, do you have any dice superstitions? No. no, no, no. I don't have any either. I was told that I was cold and calculating for not having any and not personifying or anything to do with dice. But no, I never, I never have. No. Uh, I I did when I was younger. Right. Um. Uh. It went away. <laughs> you got better. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. I just. I guess. Like. Um. Uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those things. I will, but I, I mean, I will say that I don't have any superstitions, but I will say this, that I have, I still have the first set of dice that I ever played D and D with back from when I was like eight or nine. Right. My very first set of six dice. I still have all six of them. Yeah. I've, I've got five. My 20 sided dice is mysteriously. Oh, that's, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I will say that I almost never use them now. Right. Like I just I they're in the bag with everything else. Right. I haven't segregated them or put them in a case or anything. Right. But it is very rare that I will take one of the dice right. from that set. And I ended up buying actually um I ended up buying a a Chessex pound of dice recently. Right. Um Precisely because I was playing a lot of Cortex, and, you know, Cortex uses the D4 through D12. Right. Um, and um, that's leverage the smalls and all that. And I realized that I needed enough dice of each type that I was going to have to use my first D&D set. Right. In order to give me enough dice to do this. And I was like, this cannot be. I need more. I need dice so that I don't have to use these dice. Right. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I don't. I hadn't really thought about that. Maybe that's the case for me. I don't. I, um, yeah, I, I think I have reached for them, but I haven't played a lot of dice. That are, a lot of games that have required um, haven't required. Yeah, I don't know. Here's a question for you. Um, sure. Just a very quick one. Um, sure. I when I think about the D12, and you've just you've just kind of answered the question for me. But um, whenever I think of the D12, the only use I can think of for the D12 is longsword longsword versus large creatures. Right, yeah, or two-handed, or didn't the didn't the the, the bastard sword two-handed was a D twelve? 
That's true. Uh, that was in, was it in sec in second edition, or wasn't there some of the pole arms? The yeah, I think the, Hal, the, yeah, it was a halberd maybe, the, maybe the gl- the glorious library of pole arms. Yes, yeah. <laughs> or was it or was it two d six? Like think, I don't, I'm I pretty sure the bastard sword against large creatures was like was like two d eight or something. Was yeah, and, and, it, and then it was just a long sword if you used it one handed. But but yeah, I, I, right. yeah, I always think about the D twelve and think you know, poor dice because I quite like the look of it, but it just never got to use it for anything. Anyway, right. <laughs> if you could become a character in a role playing game, what would it be? And that as in, that's as a new Lenny poof, suddenly were a character in a setting. Like you couldn't. It's not that you're playing it. You are actually it. Well, not Call of Cthulhu. I'll start there. <laughs> um... <laughs> If I were to if I were to be a a character in a role playing game, what what would I be? Um, I I would want to be um probably a, an 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 information merchant. Like any of those NPCs that the GM uses to like deposit exposition. Right. Because man, that guy's safe, <laughs> right? Like yeah. that guy. That guy will never get killed yeah. because if he doesn't give you information, then who's gonna? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So and so it's like, and I, I love those characters because you can give them like two strong personality traits. Like you can make drunk Mo the info merchant, right? And you might not ever know anything about him, right? During the game, except that he's constantly drunk and. <laughs> He knows. somehow knows the shit that you need to know. Right. And, but that character can be like everyone's favorite character in the game. Right. Uh, so I would, I would totally be, be that guy. Right on. So what's your elevator pitch for role playing and what's your go-to example? Who my elevator pitch for role playing. Okay. So I have this, um, this thing I do. Um, I just did it. Uh, yesterday, in fact, um, and uh, I use uh, Vincent Baker wrote a game called Other Kind, and and he um, uh, then it, it's hard to find now, um, and he made a derived the mechanic from that game to a thing that he calls Other Kind Dice. And it's basically just a way of establishing, like, the, the, it's a very simple thing. And the way it works is you get into a situation that's controversial and you name the following, you name whatever your goal is, right? Right. And then, and then you name one to three risks or things that could go wrong, right? And then you use dice to determine of those circumstances which go in your favor and which don't. So all the dice that come up negative for you, if you assign them to one of those things, like you roll as many dice as you have circumstances. So if you assign okay. one goal, one goal and two risks, you would roll three dice. Okay. Yes. Okay. Every one of them that comes up negative for you um, means that that thing doesn't go your way. If it's a goal, you fail it. If it's a risk, it comes true. Okay. Everything that comes positive for you um, goes your way. So if it's a goal, you attain it. And if it's a risk, then you avoid it. So then you have to choose. So if you have a, 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 a goal and two risks and you get two negatives and a positive, then you could choose to have your goal, but then both of the risks come true. Okay. Or you could choose to avoid a risk 
the and fail your goal and then have the other risk come true. Like whatever, that's where the decision making comes in. Interesting. Where like the, the the role play part of it is you have to prioritize and say, well, my character is the type of person who would sacrifice his goal to achieve blondes, that and the other, right? Right. Uh, I do it with coins. Right. So whenever I'm talking to somebody about role-playing games, instead of trying to uh, explain to them in an, in an abstract way what it is, I just start into the hypothetical situation. I take out a bunch of coins and I say, look, let's, I'm, I'm going to show you what it, what it is. Let's do this thing. You're a princess, right? So imagine you're a princess and imagine that um, there's somebody as a princess in, in this, this uh, kingdom, this fairy tale kingdom that you're betrothed to, but that you don't want to marry. Why don't you want to marry them? Like, what's the deal with them? And I just start the conversation. And, and when we get to that risky point, I just roll into that and I go, okay, so, so um, you, you know, your peasant suitor the guy you actually want to marry, but your dad doesn't want you to marry, shows up uh, under the window of your tower and says, I found a priest that's willing to marry us, but we have to escape tonight. Now what? Now you have to escape, right? So you want to get out of the castle, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I want to get out of the castle. And I'm like, okay, well, that's your goal. And then I will, you know, put an index card out or make a hand gesture or whatever. So here's your goal. It's over here. So you want to get out of the castle. So that's awesome. What could go wrong? Right. And they're like, and they're like, well, you know, probably dad could find out. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You know, throw that, you know, on there. That one's the one I get a lot, you know, what, what else could go wrong? Well, somebody could get hurt. Oh yeah. Somebody could totally get hurt, you know? And then I'm like to take these coins and shake them up. Oh, you have like two tails and one head, right? Like, so only one of these things goes well for you. Which one are you going to choose? And they're like, well, I don't really want anybody to get injured, so I'm not going to get out of the castle and dad's going to find out. And then I roll from there, right? Like, and, and I just do it. Right. I find that's the best way, right? Like, don't, you know, well, role-playing games are this hobby that they're kind of like, let's pretend with rules and the, the like, I know. Right. Like, I just do it. Right. I take the change out of my pocket and I do it. Right. Uh, and that's my pitch. Right. And thank you, and thank you to Vincent Baker for inventing other kind dice so that I could do them with coins and and have that because I'm extremely grateful for it because my God, it's so much simpler than yeah. than than the than the oblique route. And you get to a point, right? You talk to them, you do it for like 15 minutes, right? Right, and then. You stop the conversation at some point and say, okay, well, we're going to stop here. But just so that you know, you've basically done it. Right, you've, yeah. basic, you've basically played a role-playing game. Right. And certain games emphasize certain things. Like certain of them have rules that emphasize your character's capabilities so that it, it's a little bit more nuanced in the results. Like what factors apply to can you succeed at this or not, you know, and some are just as minimalistic as this, right? right. That all they're doing is establishing a, a means by which we can, can get a consensus about what's going to happen in the, in the, the story we're telling or, you know, this, that, and the other. And once you've gotten, once they've done it, yes. right, all of that, then you can pile all that shit on the back end. Right, right. And, and, and it's, it's way, it just, it's smooth as hell. All right. Good one. Okay, so here's the, uh, this one's for, uh, for all the marbles. Okay. Totaling 100. Yeah. System plus GM plus players equals. Uh, I'd, I'd divide them equally. 33, I would divide 33, 34. 30, yeah, absolutely. 33, 33, and, the, and the, the, the final point required to make the 100 is floating, right? right. That's, the, that's the subjective, uh, right, 
When your GM is really awesome, probably that's where the extra point goes. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, and, and it, it continued, that continues to be truer the more I learn about the hobby and the further I get into it and, 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 and just and examining it and examining what we do. Um, I, I think that it is a very dangerous assumption to say that any of those things matters more than the other. I think you have to take them all as parts of a synergy and examine that. Ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bosser. Thank you for having me. This is fun. That's it for episode 16 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the episode, daniel at hazardgaming.com. Signed and numbered copies of the book are available from hazardgaming.com. A print-on-demand version is also available through Lulu. If you do a search for Daniel Hodges or Victoria, you should have no trouble finding it. PDFs of the book are also available, but here's the deal. For the listeners of Penny Red, I've created a secret page on hazardgaming.com. Once you're at hazardgaming.com, click Buy Victoria. And once you're on that page, take your mouse and move it down the right-hand side of the white part of the page until you're just across from the field where you enter your email address for buying a PDF. When you get there, a secret link should pop up. Follow the link and you'll be led to another page. On that page, you'll have the opportunity to purchase the Victoria PDF for $6.99 as opposed to $9.99. You'll also find several other resources there, pictures of the characters, the characters with the character sheet but none of the spots filled in, that type of stuff. You'll also find sketches of three unreleased characters as well as those characters on the character sheets. So whether you play Victoria or not, there's something for everybody. But make sure you tune into next week's episode when Jen J. Dixon, co-host of the Walking Eye podcast, as well as botanical voyeur and expert, or sexpert if you will, on plants making whoopee on the prairie goes inside the roleplay studio. So until next week, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.